Welcome to the podcast. I conducted a poll on Twitter, MeWe, and Instagram, giving people four choices of topic for my next presentation. The results weren't even close. The option entitled, The Tax Code Simplified, took a full 50%. Is it possible to simplify one's understanding of the tax code? I'll give you the facts. You be the judge. The Dr. Reality Vodcast with Dave Champion. Let's start with this. As with all things related to a proper understanding of the income tax, you need to let go of, or at least place in abeyance, the current inaccurate understanding you have that's based on accepting as true the government's massive 60-year disinformation campaign. If you can't let go of that disinformation, then you'll never learn the truth because you'll have shut yourself off from it, and this presentation will be meaningless to you. In Income Tax Shattering the Myths, I discussed the difference between what the law calls general language versus specific language. That principle is important in every area of law, but it is critical when examining income tax law. Let me give you a non-law example. News articles are typically written with general language in the opening, followed later by specifics. An opening paragraph of a news article might read like this, quote, Police have arrested a person on several felony charges related to a recent home invasion in the city of Gibson. From that opening paragraph, we don't know which law enforcement agency made the arrest, when the arrest was made, the gender or name of the person arrested, whether there was a use of force when making the arrest, when the crime took place, what felony charges are involved, if there are other suspects involved, as well as exactly where in Gibson City the crime took place, whether there was more than one victim, the name of the victim or victims, and if anyone was injured during the commission of the crime. The article's second paragraph might read like this. The Clarion County Sheriff's Office yesterday arrested Carl Tucker, a 32-year-old parolee, charging him with seven felonies in relation to an April 24th home invasion robbery at the home of Reginald Trout in the Broad Street area of Gibson. Trout was taken to the hospital for treatment of minor injuries. Trout's daughter was in the home when the invasion began, but managed to leave by a rear door and call the police from a neighbor's house. Captain Zach Edwards of the Sheriff's Violent Crimes Unit tells Eyewitness News detectives are looking for two other assailants who are believed to have participated in the home invasion with Tucker. Tucker was taken into custody without incident. Obviously, the second paragraph is where we get all the meaningful details. The difference between the general description in paragraph one and the specifics provided in paragraph two is also how laws are written. But unlike news articles where the details are provided in the paragraphs immediately following the first paragraph, in law, the necessary detail to properly understand a statute may be found in other paragraphs, other sections, other subchapters, or other chapters. In most areas of law, the specific language is logically placed nearby and there is little trouble finding it. Tax law is often exactly the opposite. And that's not a mistake. It's by design. The specific language that provides the detail and permits a person to understand the true application of the law will always be somewhere, but in many areas of income tax law, it's provided in a way not one in 10,000 people will be able to find it and connect the dots. And again, that's 100% intentional. Why would the government do that? Why would it create such a monumental challenge in order to correctly understand to whom the tax applies? That's easy. The Constitution and the Supreme Court cases interpreting the Constitution 
do not permit Congress to impose on the American people the kind of tax the American people falsely believe has been imposed on them. Part of the plan to keep the American people from understanding the government's narrative is 100% false, is to make it nearly impossible for ordinary citizens to learn the truth. So, what's involved in learning the truth? When I began that journey, it looked like this. Locate thousands of items of information. Examine each and every one to determine if it's useful in piecing together the truth. And over a period of years, gain sufficient expertise in the vast terrain of the subject to be able to see it from the 35,000-foot level and discern where the significant pieces of information fit, much like assembling a puzzle. The difference is that when putting together a physical puzzle, you have a picture of what it's supposed to look like. The opposite is true when fitting the pieces of information together concerning the income tax. By opposite, I mean you have a completely false narrative as your reference point. You're literally constructing a puzzle with the only picture you have being something that's wildly inaccurate to what the finished project looks like. With no picture to guide a researcher from the government's disinformation to the truth, how does one come to a factual and accurate conclusion, an accurate picture, with absolute confidence of correctness? That answer is as simple as it is massively time-consuming. Every step of the way, you have to objectively evaluate the totality of your evidence to ensure it's cohesive without any conflicts. If you think you have it right, but then you determine that item X is in conflict with item Y and they shouldn't be, you have to step back and reevaluate because an error was made somewhere in the process. You have to find your error and determine what it means for the line of reasoning you were working on. In some cases, you have to jettison months of work, go back to ground zero, and begin again, this time knowing where not to go. It took me several years to understand what the income tax really is and to whom it actually applies. I didn't feel comfortable writing income tax shattering the myths and sharing the truth with my countrymen until the 16-year mark. The standard I set for myself before I could share the truth with the American people was that I could sit on a stage in front of my countrymen and the U.S. Attorney's Tax Division could parade every attorney they have onto that stage, each one challenging me about the facts and law concerning the income tax, and I could give every single one of them the beatdown. And that wasn't some whimsical notion. I have challenged virtually every gatekeeper of the government's false narrative to debate the matter. Here is what I said in a recent presentation discussing the problem of so-called experts being unwilling to defend their false narratives in public debate. I prefer not to speak of myself in these presentations, but in terms of so-called experts refusing to debate, I have a truckload of personal, relevant experience. As you may know, I'm the author of Income Tax Shattering the Mist, the best-selling book in America, revealing the truth that Congress has never imposed the income tax on ordinary, hardworking Americans. And the only reason most Americans believe that is they've been brainwashed by the U.S. government's massive 60-year disinformation campaign to convince you to believe a lie. As you can imagine, there are quite a few so-called tax experts in both government and the private sector who say I'm wrong. Great! <laughs> then let's debate and see who the public finds credible. Isn't that the way we're supposed to do it in a free country, where knowledge is imperative for proper governance? Yet in two decades, not a single one of these so-called experts has agreed to meet me in public debate. To be clear, I'm not talking about some random accountant at a business down the street. I'm talking about people at the pinnacle of the income tax industry. I have invited in writing the following people to debate me 
concerning to whom the income tax actually applies. The U.S. Secretary of the Treasury, the Commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service, the Assistant Commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service, the Chief Counsel of the Internal Revenue Service, the National Director of the IRS's Criminal Investigation Division, the U.S. Attorney in Charge of the Department of Justice's Tax Division, David K. Johnson, who at the time of the invitation was the tax beat reporter for the New York Times, and numerous CPAs who have written commentaries disparaging the truth of the income tax. In 20 years, not a single taker. Having reached the point where I could smoke any or all of those people in a debate concerning income tax law, I publish income tax shattering the myths. But the point to which all that information leads is that the government has intentionally made it so damn few Americans will ever discover the truth. The government could end the scam by going public with the information I'm going to share with you today. The fact that the federal government is taking in trillions of dollars every year in individual income taxes, the vast majority to which it is not legally entitled, should confirm its actions are intentional. What I just described was my journey, but with the publication of Income Tax Shattering the Mist, no American need ever go down <laughs> that road again. 17 years of research is distilled down to the incontrovertible facts concerning to whom the income tax applies and does not apply. And I'm going to share some of that with you right now. The tax code, which is Title 26 of the United States Code, begins with Subtitle A entitled Income Taxes. Within Subtitle A, we find Chapters 1 through 4. Chapter 1 is entitled Normal Taxes and Surtaxes. Chapter 2 is Taxes on Self-Employment Income. 3 is Withholding of Tax on Non-Resident Aliens and Foreign Corporations. And 4 is Taxes to Enforce Reporting on Certain Foreign Accounts. To be clear, these four chapters are the sum total of income tax law. I should point out that no tax has ever been enacted by Congress that doesn't include a collection mechanism. If you work for someone else, then you know what the collection mechanism is there, right? Payroll withholding. People who own their own businesses may say, there's no collection mechanism involved in the payments they receive. If you haven't bothered to read the law, you should consider there is a difference between your perception of what is occurring and what is in fact occurring. Allow me a brief explanation. People who sign Forms W-9 and have the payments they receive reported on Forms 1099 aren't withheld from only because the true legal meaning of the Form W-9 and the resulting 1099 is the money hasn't reached the circumstance, the moment when withholding is required. April 15th is when the legal reality catches up with you. For today, I'll just say that since you don't owe any income tax, you might want to know what the W-9, 1099s, and Form 1040 and 1120 actually mean in law. To whom do they really apply. Since the law says you don't owe any income tax on your domestic earnings, I suggest you should be very curious about why you're filling out W-9s, why people are reporting your non-taxable domestic income to the government, and why you're completing Forms 1120 and or 1040. I endeavor to keep these presentations short enough that busy people can consume them. To that end today, I'm not going to get into the details of what Forms W-9 and 1099 mean in law, but in the notes, I'll put the link to an earlier presentation where I lay out the law on that subject very clearly. However, because we're discussing withholding, which is the income taxes 
collection mechanism, I will mention that a Form W-9 is a withholding certificate. You can find that in the regulations at 26 CFR 1.1471-1B148, which reads, quote, the term withholding certificate means a Form W-8, Form W-9, or any other certificate that under the Code of Regulations certifies or establishes the Chapter 4 status of a payee or beneficial owner. Close quote. You know, the W-9 was in there, right? So, if you're submitting a withholding certificate to the people who pay you, you may want to educate yourself as to when the withholding is supposed to take place. Now, let's return to the four chapters of Subtitle A. For those listening, not watching, as I say the four names, try to maintain their order in your head. Visualizing the order will help you grasp what I'm about to say. The chapters are Normal Taxes and Surtaxes, Tax on Self-Employment Income, Withholding Tax on Non-Resident Aliens and Foreign Corporations, and Taxes to Enforce Reporting on Certain Foreign Accounts. Chapters 1 and 2 are what I refer to in Income Tax Shattering the Myths as the Rules of computation. What I mean by rules of computation is that if you want to know what rules apply when preparing a tax return, chapters 1 and 2 are where you'd look. The other thing that's notable about chapters 1 and 2 is they use legal terms absent the relevant factors that dictate upon whom those rules are to be applied. Remember the vagueness of paragraph 1 when we were discussing the news stories and the specifics were found further on? That is exactly what occurs in chapters 1 and 2. In pivotal sections, definitions and context are missing that are absolutely essential to a proper understanding concerning to whom the rules apply. We now understand the first two chapters are the rules for preparing tax returns. Cool. So far, so good. However, as I mentioned, Congress has never enacted any tax without specifying the means by which it is to be collected, what I referred to earlier as the collection mechanism. Now, before I go further, it is also necessary for you to understand that when Congress specifies the means by which a tax is to be collected, it is only collecting the tax from the parties who owe it. As an example, there is a federal tax on alcohol distilleries. From whom is that tax collected? is collected from the entities upon whom it is imposed, the distilleries. Another example is the 7.5% federal excise tax Congress imposes for commercial domestic air flights. From whom is that collected? From you, at the time you purchased the ticket. Congress has enacted a tax on highway fuel. How does that collection mechanism work? When you buy fuel, you pay the tax, which is built into the price of the pump for simplicities. We could go on and on, but every law that imposes a tax also imposes a collection mechanism. That's true of income tax as it is for every other tax. Keeping in mind collection only occurs from the persons upon whom the tax has been imposed, we now go to Chapter 3, entitled Withholding Tax on Non-Resident Aliens and Foreign Corporations to See the Collection Mechanism. So, what you have is Congress laying out the rules of computation in Chapters 1 and 2, and then immediately following that with the collection provisions in Chapter 3. And, as I stated a moment ago, the tax is only collected from the persons upon whom it's been imposed, which is clearly stated as non-resident aliens and foreign corporations with U.S. source income. To be clear, there is a third class upon whom the income tax has been imposed, which is U.S. citizens residing abroad with foreign-earned income. Since that facet of the income tax embraces only a tiny number of people, I rarely discuss it. 
Nevertheless, despite it affecting almost no one in comparison to the hundreds of millions of Americans being scammed by the government here at home, you should know that facet exists. What about Chapter 4? While Chapter 4 is some good reading to gain further understanding that the tax has only been imposed on non-resident aliens and foreign corporations with U.S. source income, it was only added to Subtitle A in 2010 to provide additional clarity in certain situations. By contrast, Chapters 1, 2, and 3 have existed, as we've discussed today, since the 1939 Code was revamped into the 1954 Code in 1954. If you're dismissing Chapter 3 as being the classes of persons upon whom the tax has been imposed, you're not alone in making that mistake. I made it. During the first several years I was researching tax law, I'd get to Chapter 3 and say to myself, I didn't need to take my time reading it because that had nothing to do with what I was researching. (laughs) And what I was researching to find was a clear statement in the statutes concerning upon whom the tax had been imposed. I knew it wasn't in chapters one or two, but I repeatedly ignored chapter three because of its title and the fact that I didn't yet understand upon whom Congress had imposed the tax. Back in those early days, had I taken the time to read chapter three, I would have found the clear statement of whom the tax applies to for which I had been searching. Of course, I eventually got there, but I just want you to know that you're not alone if you had that immediate reaction. Also, to let you know your reaction is off base as was mine. When one reads a lot of tax law, especially over a long historical timeline, in my case, having read tax statutes all the way back to 1862, you find that when a tax is being imposed, the legislation always follows the pattern we've discussed today. The mechanics of how the tax operates appears at the front of the legislation, and the means of collecting the tax following thereafter. What I've shared with you today concerning chapters 1, 2, and 3 is precisely how legislative draftsmen structure tax law. In other words, the only thing that may have caused you to have a knee-jerk reaction that it can't be true is your lack of familiarity with how tax law is written. And of course, that the truth cuts across the grain of your brainwashing, no disrespect intended, by more than 60 years of the U.S. government's disinformation campaign. In short, you bought the government's propaganda. And again, that's not criticism. I bought their bullshit during the first half of my life. But having bought the bullshit when you didn't know the truth is no excuse to act like it's all true when you know better, right? Let me give you an example of the lack of specificity that appears in chapters one and two, the rules of computation. I could offer virtually any section, but let's begin with section 442, which is in chapter one and addresses stock options. It starts with these words, quote, in general, Section 421A shall apply with respect to the transfer of a share of stock to an individual pursuant to his exercise of an incentive stock option, blah, 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 blah. How about Section 151, addressing personal exemptions? Quote, in the case of an individual, the exemptions provided by this section shall be allowed as deductions in computing taxable income. How about 165C, pertaining to limitation of losses? Quote, In the case of an individual, the deduction under Section A shall be limited to blah, blah, blah. You notice these sections keep saying individual. Which individual? Who is that? Let's look at the instructions for a withholding agent to withhold 
which is at section 1441 and reads, quote, except as otherwise provided in subsection C, all persons in whatever capacity acting, having the control, receipt, custody, disposal, or payment of any of the items of income specified in subsection B, to the extent that any such items constitutes gross income from sources within the United States of any non-resident alien individual or of any foreign partnership shall blah, blah, blah. Hmm. A non-resident alien. I know some of you are saying, oh, come on, Dave, what you're intimating is just silly. Is it now? Actually, no, it's not. It's defined as such at 26 CFR 1441C3 containing the definition of individual and states individual means an alien or a non-resident alien. Now that we know the definition of individual as provided by the Secretary of the Treasury and his regulations, let's look at Treasury Decision 1928, also written by the Secretary. Treasury Decision 1928 specifies who is to use what returns. Pay careful attention to these instructions. Quote, Form 1040 is to be used by individuals or their duly authorized agent in making the personal return of, an an of annual income. Quick comment. Duly authorized agent means the alien's U.S. representative, such as a domestic investment firm, handling the alien's U.S. investments. Back to 1928. Form 1041 is to be used by fiduciaries in making returns of annual net income on behalf of their beneficiaries and as withholding agents. Another quick note, who is a withholding agent? As per 1441 of the code, the person who has control, receipt, custody, disposal, or payment of any items of income of any non-resident alien individual or foreign partnership. Back to the Treasury decision. Form 1042 is the annual list return of withholding agents of taxes withheld by them on income other than that derived from corporate obligations. Form 1043 is a monthly list return of taxes withheld on foreign income by licensed banks or collecting agents. The list goes on and on, but you get the point. They're all about foreigners with U.S. source income. Let me put a finer point on this for you. If the number of the return begins with 104 followed by anything such as 1040, the 1040, 1041, the 1041, or 1042, form 1042, and on and on. It pertains only to foreign persons with the U.S. source income. You just heard it in a Treasury decision, which is the official determination of the Secretary of the Treasury concerning which returns are to be used by whom and for what purpose. And I will add, as I often do, that there is no treasury decision or regulation or statute in the 110 years since the enactment of the income tax that requires an American citizen living and working in any of the 50 states earning his or her own domestic source income to file any IRS documents or pay any income tax. Zero. None. In other words, You've got thousands of pages of statutes, regs, treasury decisions, treasury orders, and internal documents saying the tax has been imposed on foreign persons with U.S. source income and U.S. citizens residing abroad with foreign earned income. And nothing, zero, that says it applies to Americans living and working in the 50 states earning his or her own domestic source income. Yet people continue to play the government's game. And then they tell you they're not sheep. 
Remember earlier I discussed how arduously time-consuming it is to review thousands of pieces of information over many years in order to finally fit the pieces of the puzzle together in a way that creates the proper and accurate picture of the income tax? The good news for you is that because I spent decades doing just that, you don't have to. If you're an American who wants to understand the workings of the largest financial crime in world's history and how it has been committed by the United States government against the American people, in other words, if you're my kind of American, you have to read Income Tax Shattering the Mist. If you want to know the full picture, not just the small part I was able to share with you today, then grab a copy of Income Tax Shattering the Mist by going to drreality.news, drreality.news. I'll put the link down in the notes. While you're there, I want to encourage you to also pick up a copy of Body Science. Body science is to the subject of human physiology what income tax shattering the mist is to income tax. It lays out government and industry disinformation that has resulted in the people of the United States being the most ill society in all of human history. It shows you why. It then lays out what real science tells us and then gives you a roadmap to becoming incredibly healthy. In other words, if you read body science and apply what you learned, you will never be part of the ever-growing segment of this country that is diseased. So click on the link in the notes and pick up a copy of Income Tax Shattering the Mist and or Body Science. Either or both will be the most fascinating books you'll ever read. You have my word on that. Also, by purchasing Body Science and or Income Tax Shattering the Mist, you help me to continue to be here for you with these thought-provoking presentations. Thank you for being here. Take care.